0: Vietnam has overcome years of war and environmental devastation to become the world's second largest exporter of rice. But now around 10 million people suffer from lacking of rice. Joining the global marketplace has exacted a price on Vietnam.
1: We are suffering from the consequences of intensified farming.
0: Can sustainable agriculture help to solve the Asian food crisis? We just give them tools to produce enough food for family and for communities, and to protect the environment. In this hour, Outer Voices travels to Vietnam and Laos to find out. Coming up, Outer Voices presents The Price of Rice. listening to The Price of Rice from Outer Voices. Outer Voices is a series of audio profiles of women leaders in Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands. I'm Stephanie Geyer-Stevens. In the next hour, you'll hear from the voices of Vietnam's sustainable agriculture movement, This is The Price of Rice. I really began to understand that the story of the environment in Vietnam is really understanding the story of the aftermath of war, the environmental devastation of war. And that I hadn't really thought about that before. So I went to Vietnam and Laos in the summer of 2007 and 2008, and I went there in order to meet Tran Thi Long, who is the founder of SpeRI, which is the Social Policy Ecological Research Institute. Because of all the work that she's done on environmental issues, she seemed like the perfect person to really lead me into an understanding of the situation with the price
2: of rice in Vietnam. My name is Chen Thi Lange. I'm from the uh, center part of Vietnam. The village name is Tu Mi. Tu, it means for Mi, me. it means
1: beauty.
2: So, when we are uh, fighting uh, against my American and we win over, and the whole the country in the world is all Vietnam is number one.
0: I also didn't really understand how much I didn't understand about the Vietnam War. That was a big one. And the aftermath of war. I mean, we've been working in Southeast Asia. For all these years, and so by default, we've been working in the aftermath of war. But I really saw it entirely differently in this piece by looking at it through the lens of the environment of the country. Everybody's tone of voice changed a lot when they started talking about the impact of the war, the impact that Agent Orange has had on their kids and on their cropland.
2: Forest and nature, you see that like uh, dioxins and uh, bombing is <laughs> disgusting. Nature, looking at ourselves, we are de- exhausting. <laughs> you know, all our efforts is finished. People become very, very tired, you know, nature, diversity, is bombing, and everywhere is a bombing. The country, I think, very, very exhausting. And then we start to think about how to regenerate nature, education, everything together.
0: Since the American War ended, Vietnam has been completely depending on chemical agriculture to sort of jolt it into the global economy, which it's done at this fantastic rate. But in the process, you know, the land has really suffered and the people have as well. Long's organization, Sperry, steps in, and her goal is to find an alternative to say— Is there a way that we can create land use practices for Vietnam and for the region that are sustainable, that aren't relying on chemical fertilizer, that are making use of traditional practices, and that can really support people so that they can feed themselves? Is that economically viable as well?
3: They kill all the grasses by through uh, Eisen Orange.
0: Yeah. We're on our way with Tuan. He's our guide and our translator from Sperry. He is an amazing multilingual anthropologist who spends all of his time working in the field with ethnic people in Vietnam and in Laos.
3: Yes, yeah, Ho Chi Minh
4: Trail. and the uh... We're driving on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. During the American war, the communist troops travel along here carrying weapons and the people to the south along the Laos-Cambodia border. Because the Ho Chi Minh Trail goes through here, there were terrible fighting here in Guangxin and all the grasses were killed from Agent Orange.
0: So here we are, we're on our way to visit the Maliang village and Tuan points out to me that the Maliang were living in the very mountains that were the most heavily bombed you know, by napalm and Agent Orange. This was absolutely devastating to their food supply. For the past many decades they've lived a very marginal existence until fairly recently when the Vietnamese government resettled them into this one village. And now they're learning how to grow gardens in one spot, and that's new information for them. So now we're arriving at the homeland of the Maliang. This is the Maliang village. This is K village. In order to get there, though, we have to cross a river.
3: Is
0: that the boat we're taking? The Vietnamese government had offered to the Maliang to build a bridge. And the Maliang had said, no, we don't want a bridge. So instead, they have a boat. So the river that we just crossed is the Kha River, and we're now in the Kay village, which is home to about 70 families of the Maliang. There's a total of about 1,400 Maliangs still living in Vietnam. There's probably another 1,000 living in Cambodia. It's July, and it's hot. It's so hot. And everything is entirely still. And the only sound is the cicadas. We need the village leader. His name is Kaozoom. And he is the head of the clan that lives at K village.
2: Kao Zum is
0: well shy of five feet tall. He's wearing a striped Western style dress shirt and black dress pants and bare feet.
1: My name is Kao Yung.
4: I'm the Meling people. I'm a village leader of K village and also the member of the district or communal council. We are the Meling people. In the past, we used to live in the mountains at the top of the stream, in the caves, in the forest. We were nomadic people living in the mountains between Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos.
0: When people are resettled, it can be a completely devastating situation, agriculturally, culturally, economically, socially,
4: on every level. The government moved us down to a flat area at the bottom of the mountains. Of course, we were thankful to the government, but it wasn't easy for us to live there. Before, we generally did slash and burn cultivation but now we have to learn a new way of production. So it is more difficult for us. When a group of people are moved
0: out of a place that
4: they've lived for
0: for many, many years into a new place, they don't know necessarily how to grow food in that new place. They don't know where to find food. They can't build the same houses that they're accustomed to. They don't have any relationships with the neighbors or with the neighboring communities. It can be an almost impossible equation.
4: But the problem wasn't just how they grow their food. When the Vietnamese government moved the milling, they built them concrete houses. They didn't know that the milling house was built in a very special way. And if the house wasn't built in that style, they were not able to live in it. The house is the core of their whole culture. It is extremely sophisticated design that determines their whole family relationships and their relationships with their ancestors. The poles of the house were chosen by the house owner. The pole chosen for the center is considered a spiritual pole. This pole can only be cut from a tree that has never been cut before, that is still alive, and that is completely without branches for the length which is used for the core of the house. This is the pole that the dead used to climb from the floor up to the roof and then out of the house.
0: Sperry took the time to figure out what it was that the Maliang people really needed. And that made all the difference. All of a sudden, resettlement not only became possible, it became a good thing. At least for the Maliang here in this village.
4: Then Sperry came to help us learn sustainable agriculture techniques. And this is working very, very well for us. So now we have learn wet rice production is very good because we have more yield which ensures more food for our village.
1: We are learning
4: village life. We are now growing crops, building houses, and we now grow enough rice to feed everyone in our village. I am very proud because now with better nutrition, my grandchildren are much taller than me already. (laughs)
0: <laughs> as we're leaving the village as we walked down the path back down to the river two men appeared carrying a paddle and as we got into the canoe one of them got into the back of the boat and and paddled us back across the river <laughs> You're listening to The Price of Rice from Outer Voices. Stephanie Geyer Stevens. You're listening to the price of rice from Outer Voices. Sperry works in Laos because in Laos there are a lot more people who've still kept their traditional land use practices. They're still doing subsistence scale agriculture, and the Hmong, in particular have a very strong sustainable forestry practice that's a part of their culture, it's a part of their religion. So Sperry goes to Laos to learn from the Hmong. So Tuan takes us there so that we can see what they're learning from the Hmong. The Hmong were moved here to Langlan after the war in 1975. Once we get to Long Lan, it's raining. Monsoon rains.
5: <coughs>
3: My name is Su Zhang, the head of the Zhang claim.
0: Tuan's translating for the leader of the Hmong, Kaisu Zhang.
3: If their traditional identity is lost, they will lose everything. To so protect the forest, it means they protect themselves, and they believe that mountain is their mother or father, so mother and father in other way, protect their children, the children is the villagers.
5: The Hmong people
3: live in Laos in this area for almost 200 years. And normally the Hmong people liked to live in the cool areas, in the highest mountains where the forest is very good.
5: So from 1975,
3: forests were cut down. We felt very hot, and we were not happy with that. So we need to protect the forest, to let the forest grow up like this.
6: So the provincial authority of Ruocobang really concerned to protect the forest too. Fang
0: works for Spiri. She's the administrative director.
6: So the communities and the provincial authorities have the same needs to protect the forest. We recognize that point and we uh, try to make a link between communities and province level. For example, we know that the watershed, that is the concern of the authorities. So when we give information to them, we only mention about it, the importance of watershed, and how to maintain it without any paying any budget from government. So (laughs) I've already, woo, okay, good, excellent.
2: I think that now we really want to to link between Vietnam and Laos so that Vietnamese uh, village can learn from Laos traditional village because they still have a very strong community structures.
0: All of the work that Sperry does is grounded in the sensibility that the people who live the closest to the land are the ones who are going to know the most about it. They're the ones who are going to understand the most sustainable ways to manage the land. Long grabbed me and dragged me around the country with this urgency and intensity. She really wants me to see what's going on but the question is can Sperry get this working before it's too late? So finally, we're gone our way back into Vietnam. It's late at night and we cross the border. We are on a very little dark dirt road and pull into the Sperry farm school called HEPA. It turns out that they have a really big piece of land, it's 400 hectares, covering a huge area of forest as well as farmland
6: on the confluence of two rivers. We have 400 hectare forest, and it means that we have big space. Feng is the administrative director of Sperry. The pilot here is focused on permaculture. We uh, just based on the landscape, how it's designed naturally.
0: This farm school is here to teach young farmers who are mostly high school age and older, whose villages were converted to chemical agriculture after the war. So a lot of their traditional farming practices, although they've persisted, have been fractured. So the farm school is also a place where information is collected from older people who do remember the traditional ways. And so, so the farm school becomes this kind of intersection between these new sustainable practices and the old traditional knowledge. In
6: term of field school, we have three levels. We have pilots in the field school, and then we have the models in the communities, and the last one, we have model in the household. So we wake up early
0: in the morning before the sun gets up over the mountains. And we're right on a river. And just this very beautiful, placid river surrounded by forest. It could be anywhere in the world. So the first thing that happens is I get to meet the students.
1: Hello. 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 Sau đây cháu sẽ tự giới thiệu về mình. Cháu tên là Lee Selver sinh năm 1988. Greetings to Stephanie. My name is Lee Selver. Simakai District, Lao Cai
5: Cháu là tên là Vi Văn Tuấn, họ tên Vi Văn Tuấn. My
1: name is Zhang Xiao Xin I'm a Mong ethnic minority. Kuto, Lào. I come from Long Lan village. Luang Prabang
4: province. là
0: It's still a very young experiment and you know, not huge numbers of kids have graduated from these schools yet. But the kids I met were all very optimistic and really excited to be a part of it and They genuinely seemed really interested in farming, and they genuinely had real opinions about, you know, how things were going in their communities. (laughs) (laughs) Kian is our translator at the farm school, and she has a very special relationship with all of the farm school students. She's not a lot older than them, but they really look to Kian for
4: guidance.
0: Even if
1: we follow and use chemical fertilizer, we are still like a food. We continue doing other jobs just to buy chemical fertilizer. So money is just enough just to buy chemical fertilizers.
0: They may be contributing to the gross national product, but they're not benefiting as a result of that.
4: I
1: support the idea that more families should grow their own crops. If we grow more food for ourselves per family control, of their own supplies. Local people in my village can be inherited from our father, our mother, knowledge and experiences on the land.
0: So all of these young farmer students come from farming villages themselves. And they're all coming to the studying sustainable agriculture from the same questions as farmers here. I mean, is there a way that we can actually support ourselves doing sustainable agriculture? Is it going to be viable? Are we going to be able to make money doing this? It's exactly, you know, it's really the same
5: questions there as it is here.
1: First of all, being self-sufficient would mean that then we won't be facing food crisis. And we are enough, like, full for ourselves first, so we don't suffer from price fluctuation. If you're doing commercial crop, once the price change, you could lose all. We need to exchange with outsider, But it must be coming from small first, and then bigger and bigger. And I think that is sustainability.
0: It's an interesting time to be doing this piece when we're seeing the collapse of the global economy. It's an interesting time to posit what alternatives are, you know, as more realistic alternatives instead of just fairy tales. like. Maybe some people might see sustainable ag as a fairy tale, and now it's like, well, maybe that makes a lot of sense.
4: <laughs> I
0: meet up with Long. She's going to walk me around the farm and, and show me all of the different parts of the farm and the systems, you know, that they've created. We're ready? We're ready. Yeah. I'm starting to get a grasp on what they're doing here. Long shows me how they've planned the water and the roads and the forest and the fields. It's all perfectly planned so that everything has a specific interaction with everything else. It's real genius. And it's really beautiful. The way the jungle just flows right down into the fields, except for where it's gotten hacked back by the machetes.
2: Okay, this morning we are uh, going around Hepa, seeing different places. Hello, Sue. How are you? Yeah. So here also it's a really intensive of the nature diversity, the intensive of cultural diversity. And this one also has like a cross border between the south and the north. And this also is a like a the west border between uh, Vietnam and Laos very sensitive areas this plot is um, be, uh, belonging to the three students eh? you may know already so they try to create different uh, uh, experimental this one is um, black uh, soybean
0: Coming out of the stream, there are bamboo spillways that divert the water and flow into the fish pond down below. In the process, it's aerating the water for the fish. Then they grow pumpkins on trellises that are bent over the far end of the pond and that gives the fish shade and it also provides food for the fish from their leaves.
2: So you see that the uh, managing water system for farming. Eh? So you can see this one is a uh, spillway, eh? storing water. We have a water pond eh? here. This one is a good station for water eh? running down. Eh? For this one. And this one, the student makes sure that the water went dropping to make oxygen here. For this one, oh. there are many different functions. Eh?
0: Down behind the kitchen, there's a banana grove, and in the shade of the banana grove, Long shows me they're growing a whole herbal medicine garden.
2: You see that all this it's a herbal medicine. Eh? This one, when you are feeling stomach hot, eh? itch
0: also at the farm school is a group of traditional herbalists and when we find them they're out in the field and they're all gathered around a plant that they're identifying two, one of the Sperry staff is also with them and two translates for us
5: The ferns use for the eye, strengthen your eye, especially for those who is a. Uh, Cannot see
0: clearly, and you eat it.
5: Yes, eat it to strengthen your eyes.
0: I better eat a lot of those. Also for the yeah.
5: buffalo and cows' eye, uh-huh. especially the buffalo when uh, when they go to the forest, something is their eyes become all totally white, and the buffalo cannot see. The
0: cataract. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And then
5: use it one fit for buffalo. It will help. It's good to know. Yeah. yeah.
3: Next time that buffalo gets cataracts, going. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so then we follow these herbalists into a big room. It's a big concrete room, part of the farm school buildings, and they're all sitting around in chairs looking at a projection on the wall of these photographs that they've just taken out in the field. And they're talking over each other, you know, interrupting each other, and correcting each other about what the plant is and the usage of the plant. And really what they're doing is they're in the process of making a book about these herbs and
4: their uses.
5: Three of them are the Hmong people from uh, Simakai district. Laokai province, two of them are uh, Thai people from Nghệ An province,
0: central They're from Vietnam. all over Vietnam, and also from Laos. No. And they're speaking several different languages, and they've all been gathered together here, and they're trying to compile all of the information about these herbs in all of these different languages.
5: So basically what they do is uh, they share each other's every uh, herb that they know and they describe around 150 different herb species. In each page, you can see on the right hand is a picture of the herbs. The first is uh, what it called in, in Hmong language. The second is uh, how it called in Thai language. And third is how it called in Vietnamese language. And for how it called in the scientific language, Latin name. Huh? Otherwise, if we just only write in Vietnamese and Latin name, the local people cannot know.
0: They can exchange this information among themselves, and also have it available to young people that want to learn from them.
5: And in the future, you know that the said the book is firstly keep for themselves and their generation, because they own that information. They own that book.
0: You're listening to the price of rice from outer voices. I'm Stephanie Geyer-Stevens. You're listening to The Price of Rice from Outer Voices. So, you know, what the herbalists are doing is a real incredible example of how this is working and how it can work successfully. But it's not working perfectly for everybody. Sustainable agriculture can be a very tough way to make a living.
1: <laughs> tu is
0: a recent graduate from the university where she studied agriculture. She's about 21 years old when we meet her. And her family has actually moved here to try their hand at sustainable agriculture. So. When we go up to her family's house, we meet two and her mother and, and they explain to us what the situation's been like for them.
1: từ lớn. cách thì mẹ and
6: I were childhood friends. Uh, we grew up in the same village but we hadn't seen each other for 30 years. I had been growing commercial rice, but I heard about Lan and her work on the environment and organic farming in the news. I met up with her again, and she convinced me to try organic farming. So I moved here to this farm by HEPA, leaving my husband alone back in Xung Lao commune for four months. Now, my husband son and daughter, are all here with me too.
5: When we start to talk about my family situation, I really want to cry. Trying to decide between the conditions here and back in Sun Laos, it's very tough to judge what is best for us.
1: We don't generate
6: enough income from this farm. We definitely have to seek out new ways of thinking to be able to support ourselves to stay here. Here the air and the environment are really clean and the organically grown food is very safe to eat. But using organic agriculture techniques, the crop yield itself is quite low so far.
5: My parents are so used to growing wet rice in the lowland. That kind of rice grows in very different kind of soil and with lots of water. My family hasn't grown upland rice before. We're really afraid not wanting to risk growing upland rice, since we don't know how.
6: Back in the Xung commune, we grow with chemical fertilizer. Clearly, the yield is greater. We're near a market, and we're able to sell the extra rice for money to buy the rest of the food we need.
0: So this is the dilemma. When they were growing commercial rice, they were able to grow enough rice for their own use, as well as rice to sell.
1: Everyone
6: has to calculate cost and benefit in every single thing that we do. I was thinking of both of my husband and I moving back to Sun Laung commune just to grow three sours of rice. Probably we gain three million Vietnamese dong. That's about 170 US dollars. Here on this farm, I share a lot of the work with my son. As a parent, if I were to leave, I would be worried. Would he be able to manage the whole farm?
1: Who can say
5: what the right answer is? Maybe if only my parents moved back to Sung Lao to grow rice and leave the land here for my brother and myself to continue working. As a daughter, I value my family a lot. I want to see the whole family better, but maybe
1: that's not yet possible.
6: This has been a very difficult time for us. It's really hard to come up with a clear answer. Relying
0: on your annual rice harvest can be a very sketchy business. It's not necessarily going to be an easy path or a reliable one, for sure. The result is that as people are forced to become less and less self-reliant, they have to turn to other means of supporting themselves. in the morning we leave the farm to go to the train station right and there's many motorcycles out and they have what looks like they could be pool cue cases slung over their shoulders with panniers on the back it's guns and they've got animals you know I mean it's just it is a smuggler's junction there and that is one thing she wanted to do was to set the kids up to be stopping the smuggling even if it was just on their acreage like no we're not doing this here we're going to do something really different
2: as i said to you that this one is the station of smuggling the gate of smuggling and second station of the locker they all cutting timber they put here to transfer to out. this one near the road hmm? so that um when we see this area become very dangerous, smuggling coming, passing over here, and of course, we feel very angry. But we do not say anything, we let them be.
0: Now I've begun to realize that Long put this school here on purpose. She wanted to put this school right in the middle of this whole um, smuggling region as a way to stop the smuggling, to stop the illegal logging, to stop the poaching that's going on in the region. When they do actually find people who are smuggling, they they become angry, naturally, but they don't act angry. They will say, oh, you know, if you're hungry, come sit down and eat something, you know, have some tea, come sit and have some tea.
2: And when they're coming here to hunter, to hunting, or to logging, we have to, be, to talk with them very smoothly. But we're explaining to them that, if surrounding here is disgusting, how can this one survive You have to respect nature.
0: Then they try to, you know, sort of one person at a time, educate the people in the area about what they're trying to do uh, there at the farm school how they're trying to stop the smuggling, and why, what the larger reasons are for it.
2: So we're explaining that if you're cutting everything here, hunting everything here, it went flooding everything. Like five years ago here, many people die here. So explain very smooth and very slowly.
0: The students have placed little bundles of incense and burn them, like in the crook of a tree or at the base of a tree or by a special rock.
2: You see, every tree, hmm? they don't cut it when they build the roots.
0: She points out to me, you know, that this is the students making their offerings. They're making offerings to the nature spirits that live in the jungle.
2: So that uh, they have to keep their values, their civilization, They behave, they harmonize with nature. It is not backward, it's not superstition. It's a human adaptation with the different conditions. We want to confirm that people, women, children, youth and elder, they recognize that they are very valuable. What
0: Long is saying is the people are valuable. And what they know is enough to shore up their needs economically, agriculturally, in their community. And she takes that information and she models her system for sustainable agriculture. But the question is, is it working? You know, can Tu's family make this conversion that they're working on from chemical agriculture to organic agriculture and survive? Or will they have to jump off and go back and do chemical agriculture to support themselves? And the question is for the larger country, is it possible to make this transition from chemical agriculture to sustainable agriculture and have the people be able to support themselves? The thing I will never forget is the day that we went up, it was the day that we were doing this big ceremony. They were all going to walk up to the highest point to invite all of the spirits to inhabit the land. And just walking through that jungle on the path, it was the first time I'd really been that deep in the in the Vietnamese jungle too and that was that was really awesome. Being up there on the top of the mountain with the wind, you know how it is when you're up on the top of a mountain with the wind in the trees. It's just Perfect. It was the nicest day I've had in a long time. Sperry works on this really small scale, and they're not, they haven't been trying to do anything but very grassroots style of development. But now, Long has been invited by the Ministry of Agriculture to advise on a fairly large project for the country of Vietnam. So there's a shift that's begun to happen already in the kind of impact that Sperry's work has been able to have. Vietnam is in a good position to avoid a lot of our mistakes agriculturally. They're still in process in kind of re-establishing their country after the war. So, So it's a perfect time in terms of trying to set up a system for how humans interact with land. It's like, you know, there could not be a better time. underwriting for The Price of Rice was provided by the Shelley and Donald Rubin Foundation and the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Additional funding by the Lucius and Eva Eastman Foundation, the Leff Foundation, and many other generous donors. The Price of Rice was produced by Stephanie Geyer-Stevens for Outer Voices. Story consultant was Catherine Stifter. Location recording by Jack Chance and Simon Dernally. Additional narration recording by Claire Schoen. Audio production by Jack Chance. Mix engineer was Robin Wise of Sound Imagery. Audio production assistance by Marisa Benzel. Transcription assistance by Claire Kinnison. Production field research by Kathy Wong. Production assistant in Vietnam and Laos was Caroline Kemp. Translators in Vietnam and Laos were Tu Kien Dong, Quan Tu Pham, and Trung Tuan Dam. Research assistants were Sheena Stevens, Raina Davis, and Caroline Kemp. Voiceovers were performed by Chin Wing, Kim Thuy, and Maisie Wing. Traditional Music was recorded by Jack Chance and by the Archives of Traditional Music in Laos. Many thanks to Tron Ti Lang, Min Fung Nguyen, and the entire staff of Sperry. Thanks to Dwi Koi Do and the Class K1A of the HEPA Farmer Field School. Thanks also to Carol Kresge of The Language Project and to Dan Imhoff of Watershed Media. Many thanks to Na Pho and Win Tan Tui for their assistance with music. Special thanks to Dolly O'Birdie and Charlie Rin, and to Wade Davis and Gail Percy for their hospitality. The Price of Rice is the fifth in a series of profiles of women leaders in Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands by Outer Voices. To obtain a copy of this program, please call 415 497 497. 0563, or visit our website, www.outervoices.org. I'm Stephanie Guyer-Stevens. Thanks for listening.